does talk about events. Uh, We're going to open up in prayer as we seek God's leading and for him to teach us through his word this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, we are so grateful to be your children. We are thankful that you have provided for our greatest need in Jesus Christ, that is to deal with the offence and the penalty of our sin and rebellion against you. Lord, we thank you that we don't just have a hope one day for the future, but we have a very real and certain hope which affects the way in which we live on a day-to-day basis. Lord, as we contemplate the nature and the significance of your return this morning, uh, Lord, we pray that it might, as your word tells us, that it might encourage us that it might give us hope and it might transform the way in which we live and that we might hold out that hope before others. So Lord, we ask for the work of your Spirit in all of us and that your word might take root and that it might bring about lasting gospel change in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I find it quite funny some of the things that people have opposing and polarizing and quite strongly conflicting views upon often they're really trivial things there's some very famous ones like what is the correct way to dispense toilet paper does pineapple belong on pizza and which sport really deserves the accolade of being called footy (laughs) but there's one that probably wasn't polarizing 40 years ago It's not whether or not Snapchat is a complete and total waste of time because, young people, there was a time before the internet existed. I lived in that time. I saw the early days of the internet. You'd probably laugh if I told you what it looked like. But 40, 50 years ago, the idea of people turning up to your house unexpectedly probably wasn't something that people had contrasting views about. We were a lot more open and inclusive, we weren't so much individualistic. But I would imagine now, if I put out this idea of people coming to your house unannounced, for some people that's going to be a really exciting and joyful thing, and for others that's going to be total panic. Now it may be a personality thing, like an extrovert might think, this is wonderful, people come to see me, I didn't even expect it, wonderful, great. There's others who might look at that as being a negative thing and maybe they're introverted, really private or maybe they're clean freaks and they're worried that maybe one thing is out of place and someone's come and their house wasn't looking pristine, they hadn't mopped five minutes ago. It's funny, isn't it, when that happens, often the first things people will say is, sorry about the house, it's a real mess. I've realised that when people turn up to your house, they've come to see the people. They haven't actually come to see and inspect your cleanliness in the house. It's kind of like we think that if we knew they were coming, we would have the house so much cleaner. And we know it's true, don't we, that if we have invited someone to our house... That day of the week will be the cleanest day of our house for the week, guaranteed. 
But somehow we have this idea that if, if we do that when people come around, that they're going to think in their minds that our house always looks like that. That it's always perfect. But which one's the truest depiction of reality? When people come around and we put on a great show and it's all spiffy and clean, there's nothing out of place? Or the reality of what it looks like when people come up unexpected? And you know what? It's okay for people to see the real you. It's okay for people to come around and there might be one plate and one cup sitting in the sink. The cup's not even rinsed out. There might even be some toys on the ground. Last time I read through the Bible, I don't actually see it saying that those whose house is not permanently immaculate will not inherit the kingdom of God. But when it comes to ourselves, they often said that the truest reflection of who we really are is who we are when nobody's looking. Not the one that we put on display when we know people are looking. Last week, as we, we've been working through First Thessalonians, we looked at chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, and we started to engage with the idea of Jesus and his return. In particular, last week, Paul was addressing a question that had come back to him via Timothy from the Thessalonians. They knew that Paul had taught them that Jesus would one day return. And during this time, a number of believers had passed away and they were wondering, what happens to Christians who die before Jesus returns? Are they going to be disadvantaged in some way? Are they going to miss out on on something when Jesus returns? Are they going to miss out on being with Jesus? Are we going to miss out on being with them? As Paul taught them, he comforted them particularly with the words of verse 17, saying, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them, that is, those who have already died who are believers, in the clouds to meet with the Lord in the air, and so we will always be together with the Lord. So their fears of those who died in Christ missing out on being with Jesus would relieve, and their fears of whether or not they would see their believing relatives again were also relieved. But today he moves on to that ever-popular question. When? When will Jesus come back? We're all very well aware of many failed predictions that have happened in our own lifetime and even before our lifetime. Some people have even been so convinced as to sell their houses and sell their belongings because they're certain that it's going to happen on a particular date. And it becomes that little bit awkward when that date passes and nothing happens. I want to put it to you, I have a really, really reliable prediction. You can bank on this one. If you see Jesus Christ coming with the clouds of heaven and everyone around you can see it around the whole world, I reckon that day is going to be it. A lot of First Thessalonians, Paul has been reminding them of things that he's already taught and this is no exception. About the only thing he teaches them something new was the material last week. But as he answers with regards to this question about Jesus and his return, he answers both with implications for those who don't know Jesus and then contrasts and comforts those who do know Jesus. For unbelievers, he begins in verses 1 to 3 about the unexpected and unavoidable day of the Lord. 
Notice he turns to the believers in 4 to 8, tell them they won't be surprised. And thirdly, to remind them that as Christians, they don't need to fear his return, but to encourage one another with the truth that he's taught them. But he begins first with implications for those who are unbelievers, those who don't know the salvation of Jesus Christ, those who don't have a relationship with him. And much like 1 Corinthians, where Paul is responding to a series of questions and he begins with now concerning as he moves on to the next item that he's uh, working through their questions, he does the same here in Thessalonians. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. When it comes to the times and seasons, the timing about Jesus and his return that he's been speaking about in chapter 4 and that he continues to speak about here in chapter 5, everything you need to know, you already know. Paul says, I've laid it out before you beforehand. You know all you need to know about the timing of Jesus' return. Even Jesus said very clearly, only the Father knows the hour. But there's something in human curiosity that says, but I want to know. You know how sometimes like you've got a big decision coming up and people know, say, for example, you apply for a particular job and they know that you know the answer. And even though you said, I can't tell you till this date, there's always that one person or multiple who thinks they've got that special relationship with you that if they push hard enough that you'll divulge that information to them. They're thinking maybe Paul's got some hidden insights that he's not telling us. But Paul says, you already know everything you need to know. And as part of not only curiosity, I think as part of us that likes to know things because we like to be in control. We don't like the, the idea that there are things happening in the world around us that are outside of our control. And possibly, the, as the context suggests, maybe that question is coming from a perspective of, I know Jesus is coming. Can you tell us a little about when that is so that I can be prepared for when that does happen? Like if I know when it's going to be, I'll make sure I'm prepared. Now I know a lot of people who would, who would openly call themselves an unbeliever but who believe the Bible to be true in the things that they say about Jesus and his salvation but they think, I believe it's true. But right now I'm enjoying doing life the way I'm doing it. It doesn't seem like it's, it's a real urgent need. So I'm putting it off until there seems to be a pressing need to be prepared. Maybe when I get past a certain age. Or maybe if I start to get really sick. This coming Tuesday we were praying for a friend of ours last week in the service and named Paul who had a, a car crash during the week and had lost his life and left a wife and three young boys behind. His, his funeral service is on this Tuesday, early 30s, unexpected. So Paul says that he's already taught them everything they need to know. And there's two key things he needs them to know and remind them again. The first in verse 2, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. He says, this day is going to come at a time when you do not expect it. At a time when you're maybe not prepared. 
We see by the contrasting language we see when it gets to verse 4, and he says, but, but you, so he's talking now about unbelievers, not to the Christians. Jesus will come like a thief in the night, unexpected and unprepared. Now, I've never actually had someone break into my house. When we lived in Victoria, we had two attempts, one in broad daylight, that guy was on drugs, another one at night, and both of them, the dog was aware of it before we was. We were, sorry, grammar Nazis. <laughs> and, and the dog alerted both us and the person, and the person left. But has anyone ever had a card in their letterbox? Dear sir or madam, I represent public thieving. We happen to be in your area and we were considering visiting your house on Tuesday night. We don't want to disrupt you or make a sound or wake you up. We're just wondering if that's okay, if we could pop by and take some of your things. If this is not convenient or suitable to you, please let us know by this date by calling this number. I've never got one of those letters. Thieves usually come at night. At a time when it's dark, there's less things to be seen. At a time when normally we'd be asleep or we might be out. Or as the passage says, people might be drunk, so not only asleep, but other things are numbing their preparedness for something like that happening. The thing is, they come at a time when you don't expect them, when you are least prepared. And Paul is saying, Jesus' return will be likewise. Now, there's always deficiencies when you make a comparison. I mean, we might go through the entirety of our life and never have a thief enter our house. It's not a reality for everyone. But Jesus is a certainty. He will return, not necessarily in our lifetime. And the first thing Paul says, his coming will be unexpected like a thief in the night. And the second thing he says, which is also related, and again uses another human experience to explain it, he says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labour pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. He says, rather than there being a sequence of observable events where you can say, oh, this has happened, this has happened, this... Jesus is going to come really, really, really soon. He says, no. When people are saying peace and safety, everything looks really good, it'll come suddenly. Jesus explained it in the same way in Matthew 24 and 25. He says, just like in the days of Noah, people were eating and drinking and giving marriage and going about doing normal everyday stuff. And then came the flood. He said, so it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. The image Paul uses is labour pains for a pregnant woman. Again, something I haven't experienced and won't experience. But when you are pregnant, if all is going well, you know without doubt, at some point, labour pains are going to happen. You don't know when they're going to happen, but you know that they're a certainty, they're unavoidable. And because they're they're a certainty and they're unavoidable, Sometimes they happen at really inconvenient times, I presume. So when you mix these two metaphors together, he's saying that it is unexpected, the coming of Jesus, 
and it will be unavoidable. Something that you cannot prevent from happening. It's not something that does not apply to you. And if you're not rightly prepared, he says, the unexpected, unavoidable will result in sudden distraction. But this doesn't have to be the outcome of that day, nor does it need to be a day to be, to be in fear. The God who made us, the good God who created everything, the one who we turned our back upon, even though he'd given us everything that was good, and we were designed to live in relationship with him, we deserve to die when we turned our back on the one who'd given us everything and just shunned him. But when he came into this world in the person of Jesus Christ, he didn't come to give us the punishment we deserved. He came to take the punishment on our behalf. That is the nature of the love and grace of our God. That he bore the full punishment for our rebellion and dealt with every aspect of our sin 100%. And when we recognise that he is the good king, that we are designed to be in relationship with, that we should have given him all honour and glory and thanks, but we hadn't and we deserved death, we give him thanks that he sent Jesus. We turn to him in repentance and faith. We live for him and we know that he has dealt with the offence of our sin and our separation from God. And in that circumstances, it's not a day to be feared because that distraction won't come upon us suddenly. That distraction, that punishment has been dealt with entirely upon Jesus Christ on our behalf. And it becomes a day to look forward to. And that's where Paul makes the transition. He says, this is outside of Christ. This is what it will look like. Then he goes to make a contrast with believers. But you, you Thessalonian believers, you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. In verses 4 and 5 he says, You guys, you are not night. You are not darkness. You are light. You are day. And because the identity of Christians and their status before God is radically different, so it is fitting that they live radically different. And so he says to them, this day will not surprise you like a thief in the night. Not as a way of saying that as a Christian, when they see Jesus coming in the clouds of heaven, that you turn around and add your mates and go, I told you it was going to be today. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying, it won't be a surprise like a thief in the night for you. It won't be a time like when a thief comes who comes and takes everything precious and valuable from you. Rather, it will be a day of immense blessing where you'll receive everything that you've longed for in this life. To the Philippians, Paul describes us, we are citizens in heaven eagerly awaiting a saviour from there. where the completion of everything we long for in this life, all of our salvation hope comes to its full fruition. We see the picture in Revelation 21 of an eternity in the presence of God. No death, 
no sickness, no pain, no sadness, just all of the wonderful blessings of being in his presence forevermore. But we're not just future citizens of heaven, nor are we future members of God's kingdom. We are present citizens in heaven and present members of God's kingdom. And because our identity and our belonging is with him, that changes the way in which we respond. If you're a citizen or you belong or you're living in another country, different laws and rules apply. If I'm in Brisbane tonight, if I was staying in an apartment complex and I hear someone flash a toilet at 10.30 at night, I don't ring the police. However, in Switzerland, there is a law that you, if you're in an apartment complex, you cannot flash a toilet past 10pm at night. Where you belong, where you are located, where your citizenship is, affects behaviour. So the key to Paul's concept of what he's teaching here in verse 6 is because you are not anymore darkness and night, you are light and day, live according to who you are. What is an appropriate way to live? Knowing that you are different, knowing that Jesus has returned? He says, not like the others. We saw that same language last week, didn't we? He says, don't grieve like the others who have no hope. Because we have hope in Christ, our response to the death of of believers is different. But so also is the way in which we live in this life. Because we have a hope in this life. Not like the others who sleeping and drunkenness. It says, our conduct to others should be so different that it is like night is today. Our identity is so dramatically different, therefore our behaviour is dramatically different. And you could wonder why Paul even warns Christians regarding these things. I mean, it should make sense. You belong to Christ, he is king. Of course we're going to live to please him. But the fact that Paul warns, and the New Testament constantly warns people of things like this, is because it's a very real temptation. When we are surrounded by people who have values very different than ours, we are influenced by the things we are surrounded by, and because of the the call and the pull of our own heart towards dishonouring God, it's something that we need to be warned against. But in light of who they are in Christ, and in light of the fact that Jesus is returned, Paul has encouraged them to live in light of who you are. Now, sadly, I've seen people preach through this passage as almost like a major threat. Almost like a threat of, Jesus is going to return one day, and if he comes on a day when you're doing something wrong, you're wiped out. I say, this is the guilt passage. Jesus is going to come back, so you make sure that on every single day, because he might come any second, that you're not doing something naughty that second, because if you do, game over. But when you read through verses 1 to 11, that's not the message Paul is communicating, is it? particularly when you look at verses 9 to 11. The language, though, does get a bit confusing. I think it was Sarah Preben, I was chatting to this about after service last week, is that last week it talked about sleep in reference to believers who were dead. This week he goes back to still using that same term sleep to unbelievers who are alive but who are unconscious to the goodness and the grace of God in the gospel. 
And then you wonder, how is it good advice to stay awake and be sober? I mean, the sober bit makes sense. Staying awake. No amount of caffeine is going to do that 24-7, is it? I haven't tried, but it doesn't. The fact is, we all used to live in that sleepy ignorance. We all used to live in a way in which we just went along. We were dead to the things of God. But we are a new creation. We're born again. Therefore, we don't live like we used to. Peter puts it this way in his epistle, saying, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, again, sober-minded, similar theme to First Thessalonians, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Set your minds on the glorious inheritances to come. Remember that you've been brought out of your former darkness. Be holy, for God is holy. The passage isn't a threat. It's simply a reminder to live in accordance to the glorious calling of your identity in Christ. In verse 8, he picks up on the language of putting on armour, which we often think about Ephesians 6, 12 to 20. But as Samuel has highlighted, it actually comes from Isaiah 59, where it is God's armour that God has put on. What he's saying to the Thessalonians is, God has given you everything you need for this day. To live a life prepared for his return. You need to keep putting on what God has already provided for you. And as Christians, this day isn't one to fear, but to encourage one another. I don't know about you, but my temptation is often to be more aware of the negative things about myself than it is my positive things. There are days in my life where I can clearly say, yep, God has really been at work. This is only by the grace of God that this has happened. But there are also days in my life where looking at things that I've done, you might think, I don't know if that guy's even a Christian. Now, I don't go through days where I doubt my salvation, but there are certainly days where I'm acutely aware of how unworthy I am of a relationship with God. Hence why Jesus Christ had to die. I know that even on my best day that I've ever lived in my life is never going to meet his perfect and holy standards. But if we are in Christ, there is comfort in the words of verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. be one thing to say, but you're not headed for wrath. But that's not what it says. God has not destined us. God has not set or appointed us for wrath. God has set and appointed something for us. It's not wrath. What he's set and appointed for us, those who are in Christ, is to obtain salvation. That's why we don't need to fear this day of the Lord, the return of Christ. God has appointed for us that to be a time when we obtain the salvation for which we have been brought to him and for which we live for. Not because we've lived perfectly at the light, 
Not because if he does return in my lifetime or the day when I'm at my pinnacle, pristine best. But because Christ has died and paid the penalty for our sin. He has lived the perfect life that I could not live. He has died the death that I deserve to die. And so the day of the Lord is not one to fear, but a time when we will live forever with him. So Paul says, encourage one another as you're already doing. No matter what happens to you in this life, no matter what things might come against you, no matter what little failings you may have, and we all of us do, let's not, let's not be silly about it. God, if you are in Christ, God has appointed that day not to be a day of wrath, but a day to obtain salvation. So next time you've messed up in a big way, and we do, we're not perfect, and we think, I deserve God's wrath. That's, I've really blown it this time. There's no way that God would call me to himself. Remind ourselves, yeah, I do deserve God's wrath. But Jesus bore that on my behalf. And what Jesus did is perfectly satisfactory to cover all sin. Even that one I just did. And God has not appointed me to wrath, but to obtain salvation. So what, the, the final question we always come to. Well, there are three things. The first two are is that there are two camps in which every single person in this world falls into with regards to this day of the Lord. Paul began with those who are outside crisis. For them, it's going to be like a thief in the night who comes unexpected and it's going to be like labour pains for a pregnant woman, meaning it is unexpected and unavoidable. A day when everything, if you're outside of Christ, everything that you value, everything you hold dear, will be taken. And you'll enter into an eternity of distraction. But it doesn't have to be that way. The simplicity of that is expressed in the most common and well-known Bible verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life and for those who are in Christ it's not a day to fear it's a day to look forward to to gaining the completion of that salvation that Jesus Christ had begun within us a day that he's not set aside for wrath for us but to obtain salvation but the central heart of what Paul is communicating to them is how do we live as Christians as the people prepared for his return. We said that our lives are to be so different, like as day is tonight to the others who are around us. But what does that look like? What do we make of the imagery of, of a thief in the night, or of being awake, being sober? Well, think about your house. And the idea of a thief approaching. One thing we could do is that I could set myself up one window, Sarah at another, Miller at another, Kenzie at another, heaps of caffeine because we've got to stay awake 24-7, maybe with a gun. That would probably reduce the likeliness of someone breaking into our house. But what a wasted life that would be. Sitting in a window for the entirety of my life, drinking copious amounts of coffee, sitting there with a gun, doing nothing else. 
Nobody does that. Not even their fruitcakes you see on some of those, those pay TV channels or other stuff. Their preppers, they still sleep. They've got machines and stuff to do all their windows and machine guns and whatever else. But what do we do is we lock our doors, we might put an alarm on, we might have security cameras, all those sorts of things. But because we know thieves don't send those cards, we do take appropriate measures. In a spiritual sense, to make the comparison back to the house scenario, the, to compare with the idea of sitting in the windows, coffees and machine guns, you could think, oh, well, alert and always awake. I'm just going to read the Bible and pray every waking moment. Do nothing else for the entirety of my life. And while they're wonderful, good things, it's not the best use of the time which we've been given. I'd be so consumed in doing that thing that I would never be able to participate in the mission which God has given to every single one of his followers. But to come back to that opening question, the unexpected visitor who comes to your house and you're worried about how is my house presented? They're going to see the real me, they're going to see the real environment. We've already said the real us is who we are when no one's looking. And if the real us is defined as being a follower of Jesus Christ, means the real us will follow Christ all the time. Regardless of whether someone's watching, whether someone's not. And if the real us is as a follower of Jesus Christ, the timing of the return is not the issue, is it? The timing that concerns only an issue if you're worried about, do I need to do something and prepare it? Be ready. We can be content with the words, one day, only the Father knows Jesus will return. The person who wants to know when he's returning so they can be prepared is pretty much an open statement. I don't want to follow Jesus now, but if it becomes a pressing issue, I'll start doing it later. If you don't want to follow Jesus now, Odds are high you probably don't want to live in eternity with Jesus. And if you don't want to follow Jesus now, when he returns, signs are pretty good that you won't be spending an eternity with Jesus. In the passage, even the question seems to be a question that belongs to unbelievers. But what it reminds us, those who are in Christ, we are light, we are day. We belong to Jesus, who is the light of the world. We seek Jesus. We seek to become like Jesus. We call others to the light, who is Jesus. In the prayer and in the hope, depending upon God, that when that day comes, that those two, maybe people can say, I am a citizen of heaven, eagerly awaiting a saviour from there to obtain the salvation of our souls. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, you have given us everything we need to know. We thank you that we don't need to worry about when you will return. We don't need to panic as though, what if you return before I do this that I'd hope to do in this life? Whereas an eternity with you will be far more than anything that we could ever imagine. 
But if we don't get an ear, it is a chilling thing to, to be reminded that you, your coming will be like a thief in the night. We don't know. It'll be a time when we don't expect. But it's also something that's unavoidable. By simply writing it off doesn't make it not a reality that we all must face. Lord, for those of us who, who do know you, may it be a joy to daily live as followers of Jesus Christ, not to impress our Christian peers around us, not to impress anyone, but just because you have paid the price to set us free from an eternity of destruction and punishment, that we have a relationship with the good God who created us and gives us all good things to enjoy. Help us to live a life worthy of the gospel, pleasing to you in every way and calling others into relationship with a the, with the God who loved them enough to send his son into the world to die for them. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week's reading, we'll be finishing First Thessalonians um, next week, so that'll come to an end. Then we're going, as we're leading up to Christmas, we're going to do a, an unusual